Hello, my name is Randy Sheckman. I'm at the University of California at Berkeley in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. Today, I'll be giving three presentations on the cellular process that is used to package protein molecules that are made inside the cell but have to be shipped outside of the cell. In my first presentation, I'll discuss some of the historical aspects of how we learned about biological membranes and how they are deployed to encapsulate protein molecules as they are made inside the cell. In my next lecture, I'll describe how this process was understood at the molecular level using a simple nucleated organism, a simple eukaryote called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, or baker's yeast, and I'll tell you about both genetic and biochemical approaches to understanding this process. And finally, in my last lecture, I'll discuss some very recent experiments on how cells package small RNA molecules that are encapsulated into vesicles uh, that are discharged at the cell exterior and may communicate uh, between cells in our body. But let's begin with a discussion of how cells are organized. The basic principle of organization of cells comes with an understanding of the uh, structure of a biological membrane. That's uh, depicted on my first slide. So here you see a cartoon of a biological membrane uh, consisting of two leaflets of molecules called lipids or phospholipids. They are shown here with red balls that uh, are the water-loving or hydrophilic head groups of a phospholipid molecule connected to these thin tails. They are the water-hating or hydrophobic uh, fatty acid side chains that constitute the inner core of the membrane bilayer. Two leaflets of lipids come together to form this bilayer. Embedded in a biological membrane are these green structures. They are protein, they depict protein molecules. Some of them go clear through the bilayer. As you see here, this example is maybe, for instance, a channel in the membrane through which small molecules may come and go, or this example may be of a protein that is a receptor uh, that sits on the outside of the cell and recognizes hormones that may interact with the cell to convey information to the cell interior. Now, all membranes in cells have this basic structure, but each membrane in a cell has a different kind of personality. And they go from very simple organizations to very complex organizations. Here, for instance, is the simplest cell. This is a red blood cell coursing through your bloodstream. It consists, at least in a human, of a single membrane uh, surrounding uh, an internal cytoplasm that is filled with hemoglobin, the protein molecule in your uh, red cells that carries oxygen to your peripheral tissues. So just a simple cell with a single membrane. But in contrast, for example, a much more complex cell. This is a very important cell in your pancreas. It's called the beta cell in the islets of Langerhans. It's responsible for manufacturing insulin, 
uh, that is discharged outside of the cell, carried within the cell by these little granules. These, these look like little eye, uh, eye spots, but they're granules that house insulin and convey it uh, through the cytoplasm to the cell surface where it is discharged by a process called membrane fusion that we'll discuss in a few minutes. So enormous difference in complexity between a cell that has many functions, such as in the pancreas, or a simple cell, such as the red blood cell. Now, a cartoon of the various membrane organelles that are found inside of the cell is depicted here. This is a cell um, from an epithelium uh, surrounding a tissue that is responsible for making many protein molecules uh, that are shipped to different places in and out of the cell. Uh, at the base of the cell, you see the nucleus housing the chromosomes. Surrounding that nucleus are membranes that constitute a network called the endoplasmic reticulum uh, that are dotted with these little particles. They're ribosomes. Ribosomes are the machines that stitch amino acids one next to, to another to make protein molecules that are often transmitted across a membrane into this clear space of the endoplasmic reticulum, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. There are many other membrane organelles in the cell. The powerhouse organelle, the mitochondrion, a structure called the Golgi apparatus, through which protein molecules are conveyed, and other membranes that have specialized functions like the peroxisome or the endosome. Uh, these all, uh, all have biological membranes surrounding them, and each has different protein molecules that execute the unique functions of, of these organelles. Now, much of what we know about the organization of an animal cell came from the pioneering work of cell biologists in the middle part of the 20th century. Prominent among them was a brilliant cell biologist by the name of George Pallotti. Dr. Pallotti uh, was an uh, emigre from Romania. He came to New York, where he established his laboratory at the Rockefeller University. In the mid-1950s, it was Pallotti who discovered the ribosome. Uh, he did this, as with much of the rest of, the, of, of his work, by perfecting an instrument called the electron microscope, which you see, him, see, see here uh, him seated behind. Uh, he and Keith Porter and other scientists at the Rockefeller devised procedures to fix cells and tissues and to preserve them so that they could be uh, sectioned in a diamond knife and then visualized under an intense electron beam uh, where the electrons were scattered by structures within the cell. And all of the beautiful pictures, some of which I'll show you, were interpreted by him to understand many of the functions of membranes that communicate with one another by the process of protein secretion. Now, let's go through, step by step, each of the organelles that Pallotti and his students were able to appreciate, both by visualizing them in the electron microscope, but also by isolating them and studying them as biochemical entities. The first organelle that he was able to understand is the endoplasmic reticulum. Here you see a section through a cell of the pancreas. 
These cells in the pancreas are differentiated. They are already developed to their full potential. Their major role is in the production, packaging, and secretion of proteins that go in eventually into the gut or into the bloodstream. And as a result, the network responsible for the manufacture of these proteins is highly elaborate. In a cell of the pancreas that is differentiated to make proteins for export, the endoplasmic reticulum, this network of membranes, uh, can have a surface area that is 25-fold greater than the surface area of the membrane that surrounds the cell. So it's an enormous and and, uh, quite elaborate platform. Uh, And you'll note uh, that these platforms are studded with ribosomes, each of which is acting to produce a protein molecule, which will eventually find its way across the membrane of the endoplasmic reticulum to rest in the clear luminal space. This luminal space then represents a kind of a, uh, um, a, a canal system within the cell, a large fluid volume, collecting molecules that have passed the barrier of the endoplasmic reticulum membrane and are poised to be shipped along this canal network uh, through the cell by steps that I will elaborate over the next few minutes. Now, you can get a better sense of the dimensional arrangement of this endoplasmic reticulum in the cartoon shown on my next slide. You see here that it's not just a set of tubules, but it's actually a set of sheets of leaflets that uh, are envelopes that spread throughout the cytoplasm and can occupy a great fraction of the cell. Most of this membrane has the ribosomes studying its surface, but there are also parts of it that are smooth, that are free of ribosomes, that may represent transitional zones from which molecules become packaged into vesicles that convey this material downstream in the pathway, as you'll see. Now, what Pilate did to pursue this understanding of the function of the endoplasmic reticulum was to devise techniques to break cells open, to take tissue, to homogenize, to break cells open, and then to obtain partially and eventually highly purified fractions of membranes that could be studied for their molecular composition and their biosynthetic potential. Here is a very simple first step that Pilate and his uh, colleagues Christian Dadouve and Albert Claude devised to begin to fractionate membrane organelles. So one starts with a tissue, a pancreatic tissue, for instance, and this tissue can be disrupted by a physical agitation to break the cells open, but to preserve membranes relatively intact in a cell homogenate or cell lysate. Now, in this lysate, if the cells have been gently broken, membranes retain different sizes and shapes, and they can begin to be separated from one another by a series of steps of centrifugation steps, where the homogenate is placed in a centrifuge tube and sedimented at different speeds. At very low speed of sedimentation, large membranes, for example, the nucleus, sediment out of suspension to form a pellet at the bottom of the tube. At medium speeds of centrifugation, other somewhat smaller organelles like the mitochondrion, the lysosome, 
or the peroxisome uh, can be sedimented and obtained in a slightly enriched form. And then at higher speeds of sedimentation, very small membranes, small vesicles, eventually sediment out of uh, suspension and form a pellet at the bottom of the tube. And so these distinct pellet fractions can be uh, examined for their biochemical composition and uh, for their structure, as seen in the microscope. Now, another principle that Pilate perfected to specifically to isolate those membranes that have ribosomes bound to them is shown on the next slide. And this is a procedure where membranes are separated according not to their size, but to their buoyant density. Uh, they, membranes have distinctive buoyant density. Membranes that are free of ribosomes tend to be more buoyant, less dense, and they, they can be separated from membranes that retain ribosomes, uh, and which are, uh, have a higher buoyant density. So in a homogenate, the sample having both membrane-bound and unbound uh, structures can be applied to the top of a gradient, typically a gradient of sucrose from low to high, and then the sample can be sedimented for a very long time so that the membranes achieve an equilibrium buoyant density and the smooth membranes lacking ribosomes are uh, sediment to a position of low buoyancy, whereas those membranes that have ribosomes sediment to a position of high buoyancy, of high buoyant density, cleanly separating these two membranes. This high buoyant density fraction uh, is a relatively enriched source of membranes that have ribosomes and, as you'll see, have the ability to uh, take protein molecules that are destined for secretion and pass them across the membrane into the clear interior space of the organelle. Now, I'm going to summarize work not only of uh, Dr. Pilati, but uh, principally of his uh, protege, uh, another very famous cell biologist by the name of Gunter Blobel, who was able to pursue Pilati's original pioneering work using biochemical cell biology to understand the precise mechanism that proteins use as they pass from a ribosome across the membrane of the endoplasmic reticulum into the clear interior space, the first step in a long sequence of events that eventually will leave the protein molecules secreted outside of the cell. So here is then a summary of a great deal of work that uh, uh, Dr. Blobel achieved and for which uh, he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, we start with ribosomes that assemble together a large subunit of the ribosome and a small subunit of the ribosome. They come together uh, along with a messenger RNA, in this case, a messenger RNA that encodes a protein that is going to be secreted. Uh, what uh, Dr. Blobel discovered is that proteins that are destined for secretion have a special a sequence at the very end terminus, the beginning of the protein, that tends to be somewhat uh, apolar or hydrophobic. And that sequence uh, draws, called a signal peptide, draws the ribosome, messenger RNA, nascent protein chain, uh, eventually to a channel in the ER membrane through which the polypeptide is inserted and progresses 
into the clear interior space, the luminal space of the ER. In the course of the biosynthesis of this protein, uh, Blobel discovered that the hydrophobic, the apolar signal peptide, is clipped by a special protease in the ER membrane that produces the mature N-terminal domain of the secretory protein that is now free uh, to fold into a, uh, a, a functional tertiary structure uh, in the lumen of the ER, folded properly and ready to progress through the pathway. So this, uh, called eventually um, called the signal hypothesis, predicted uh, the existence of a channel. And in my next lecture, I'll tell you about how um, my laboratory was able to use genetics to discover the genes that encode this channel. Uh, now, um, after molecules have folded uh, and are ready to go, they are ready uh, to perform their function eventually outside of the cell, they are recognized and conveyed in vesicles that I'll describe in my next lecture to the next station in the secretory pathway, a structure called the Golgi apparatus. Here is a depiction of the Golgi apparatus. It's kind of uh, looks like a stack of pancakes, uh, although in three dimensions, it's a, a, a rather more complex organelle where the membranes uh, are interrelated, not only stacked one on top of the other, but have tubular connections. This was a structure that was first described in the 19th century by an Italian cytologist by the name of Camillo Golgi, who, um, whose um, um, uh, discovery was based on uh, his finding of a dye, a chemical dye, that highlighted this membrane in nerve cells. It highlighted this membrane at the expense of other membranes. We now know that this dye that uh, Golgi devised recognizes carbohydrate, uh, and carbohydrate is rich on glycoproteins that are uh, packaged uh, and conveyed through the Golgi apparatus. Uh, but uh, after this discovery in the late 19th century, um, very few investigators were able to make progress for nearly 60 years, this organelle was considered a, a cellular curiosity with no obvious function. And it was not until the 1960s and 70s when Dr. Pilati focused his vision on this structure were we able to deduce that it is a station en route between the endoplasmic reticulum and the cell surface through which molecules are conveyed, much as passengers would be conveyed through a bus station, they are conveyed through the Golgi apparatus and shipped to different destinations in the cell and outside of the cell. And I'll have more to say about uh, this Golgi structure as time goes on. Now, once molecules uh, progress through this station, they are ready, they are mature, they are ready to be uh, encapsulated within granules that eventually convey them to the cell surface. And there's a simple diagram that I'd like to share with you that describes what happens next after the Golgi apparatus. So here's a very simple depiction of the fate of uh, secreted molecules as they are packaged into granules and eventually delivered to the cell surface. So here you see such a cartoon of a granule that's got a membrane and the red dots on the, in on the inside represent molecules like insulin that are being manufactured inside of a beta cell of the pancreas. At a certain time, this mature granule finds its way to the cell surface 
and the membrane of the granule merges with the membrane of the cell surface to form a continuous bilayer that results in the interior content of this granule being discharged to the cell exterior. And crucially, this happens without breaking the cell, without breaching the permeability barrier of the membrane that surrounds the cell, or else the cell would lyse. So you can then uh, affect secretion of water-soluble molecules like insulin and hormones and antibody molecules by this process of membrane fusion. And uh, the final product then is seen uh, outside of the cell. Now let's look at a real example from a cell that Pallotti visualized showing virtually the same thing that I've depicted in my cartoon. At a certain crucial moment, the content of this granule uh, condensed in its interior and surrounded by a biological membrane migrates to the cell perimeter where the two membranes, the membrane of the granule and the membrane surrounding the cell, uh, come to very close apposition. Uh, so close that the cytoplasmic content between these two membranes is squeezed out. The membranes come so close that they can approach each other within angstroms. Um, and then at a key moment, the cell uh, receives a signal that causes the membranes to merge by this process of membrane fusion. And as you saw a moment ago, uh, the interior of the granule is ejected to the cell exterior. In this case, this granule is condensed and somewhat crystalline, but it dissolves when it leaves the cell. And eventually, protein molecules, such as insulin, are distributed into the bloodstream. So this is a crucial step that occurs not only in the pancreatic beta cell, but in all cells, in virtually all cells that are manufacturing proteins. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's a cell that contains a huge supply of proteins that are to be secreted. Enormous numbers of granules are built up in this cell, and eventually when the cell is triggered by some stimu stimulant to uh, uh, engage in protein secretion, the granules all reach the cell perimeter, and then look what happens. The cell is almost appears as though it's exploding, but the cell, in this case, still remains intact. But all of the material has been secreted, and the cell surface membrane is distorted by having accumulated a lot of this membrane that was in granules that now is at least temporarily merged and fused at the cell perimeter. The cell restores itself. Some of the excess membranes taken back into the cell. It fills, these granules are filled up and the process can be repeated. Now in the brain, this process uh, takes shape uh, in the secretion of chemicals, not necessarily proteins, but chemicals, particularly chemical neurotransmitters. And here's an example. This is not uh, a human brain, but this is actually uh, the connection between a nerve cell and a muscle cell at a structure called the neuromuscular junction. This sample happens to be taken from a frog, but the same is true in all uh, metazoan cells. So this is a nerve cell. This is a nerve terminal. Um, the membrane that surrounds the nerve terminal is a, is a, is a traditional uh, plasma membrane. But as you'll see, inside in the cytoplasm of the nerve terminal, there are many small granules. In this case, they're called vesicles or synaptic vesicles. And these synaptic vesicles house the chemical transmitters uh, that um, mediate communication between a nerve cell and a muscle cell. For instance, 
these synaptic vesicles house molecules like serotonin that in affects mood uh, and mood disorders in humans. Or these uh, synaptic vesicles may house dopamine, the chemical neurotransmitter that uh, is responsible for much of our movement and also um, affects uh, cognition and which is drastically redu reduced in patients suffering from Parkinson's disease. Uh, another uh, very important neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, uh, responsible for much of the communication between nerve cells and uh, which is uh, um, very uh, tragically lost in patients that succumb to Alzheimer's disease. So these granules then are manufactured. They collect very high chemical concentrations of neurotransmitters, and they come up right up to the cytoplasmic side of the membrane surrounding uh, the nerve terminal. And uh, you can actually visualize the process of fusion of these vesicles at the presynaptic membrane by a very clever experiment that was first devised by John Heuser um, in St. Louis some years ago that allowed him to stimulate a nerve terminal and then very quickly, within milliseconds, capture images in frozen samples uh, that allow one to actually see the membranes begin to merge with the uh, plasma membrane of the nerve cell. Here is a time sequence a resting nerve cell followed by stimulation and rapid processing within five milliseconds. You can begin to see events where the vesicle has just started to merge and the interior of the vesicle becomes secreted to the space, in this case, between a nerve cell and a muscle cell. The chemicals that uh, diffuse into this cleft, the synapse, then bind on the muscle side to receptors that allow a muscle cell eventually to contract. So all movement uh, is based on this rapid communication of neurotransmitters mediated by vesicles that share much of the same process of secretion that we see in cells such as the beta cell of the pancreas. Now, Pilate, Dr. Pilate, uh, didn't just take lots of pretty pictures. He did a, 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 an amazing experiment that allowed him to, in a way, visualize the stages in this process step by step using a combination of uh, pulse chase radio labeling, autoradiography, and thin section electron microscopy that gave us the picture that we now have, now 50 years later, of how this process is organized in eukaryotic cells. And this is then a simple cartoon that dis displays um, Pilate's final pioneering work for which he won the Nobel Prize in 1974. We know from his work that proteins originate on ribosomes bound to the endoplasmic reticulum. They are allowed to fold in this clear interior space. They are then packaged into little vesicles that convey material to the Golgi apparatus. Material then flows through the Golgi apparatus. Some is diverted from the Golgi apparatus to an intracellular organelle, such as the lysosome, which is the kind of digestive uh, organ of, uh, of a cell where protein molecules may be broken down. Or other granules are formed by budding at the Golgi apparatus to produce mature secretory granules that 
move and by a process of membrane fusion, uh, discharge their content to the cell surface. Now, I had the um, privilege of meeting Dr. Pilati when I was a graduate student. And then uh, an important event in my career came when I was a postdoctoral fellow at UC San Diego. And I heard Dr. Pilati describe his uh, pioneering work to uh, an audience of the American Society for Cell Biology. This was in 1974, just as he had re returned from Stockholm, having received his Nobel Prize. And uh, I was trained as a biochemist, not as a cell biologist. It was clear how brilliant the work that Pilati had done uh, was and how revolutionary it was for the field of cell biology. But as a biochemist, what struck me was that this beautiful image summarizing decades of work describing an obviously essential cellular process was nonetheless devoid of any molecular mechanistic understanding. But that is in 1974, when Pilati uh, was recognized for his work, we didn't know about any gene or protein molecule uh, involved in organizing this pathway. Nothing, literally nothing was known. And so I resolved when I began my career at the University of California at Berkeley to study this process in an organism that would allow a molecular dissection of the mechanism of this pathway. Everyone until then had studied mammalian cells uh, or uh, animals where, at least in the mid-1970s, the techniques of genetics and biochemistry were not well developed. And so what I decided to do at the outset of my uh, independent career was to explore this process in a simple organism, baker's yeast. Baker's yeast can be grown in large quantities. Here is an image of a scanning EM picture of yeast cells such as you might see growing on the surface of a grape. Yeast cells grow by a process of asymmetric budding, where a small bud emerges from the surface of a mother cell and grows in preference to the mother cell during the first 90 minutes or so of the growth of, of the cell until uh, the daughter cell pro or, or achieves the size of the mother cell, at which point they divide. And if the nutritional conditions are correct, the cells can uh, continue through yet another cycle of division. Now, yeast was a particularly important organism uh, in the history of, uh, of molecular biology because of the use of traditional classical genetic approaches that allow one to understand genes and thus proteins that are in, involved in any uh, cellular process, even essential cellular processes. Uh, and I'd like to highlight, uh, as a recognition of this uh, uh, application of genetics, the work of a pioneering geneticist, yeast geneticist by the name of Leland Hartwell, who, who was able, using very simple visual techniques, to identify genes that are required for the progression of cells through the cell division cycle. He did this by introducing, using a chemical mutagen, mutations into the yeast genome, and then looking among these mutants for those that affect a particular step in the ability of the cell to complete its division cycle. These are called CDC, or cell division cycle mutants, and each represents a mutation in a gene that is essential for cell viability. The way you can study these genes is by obtaining mutations 
that are conditional in their effect. That is, that allow the cell to grow at, for instance, room temperature, but kill the cell when the cell is warmed to human body temperature, 37 degrees. And so he obtained dozens of such mutations, each of which defines a gene required for protein, uh, for, uh, for progression through the cell division cycle. So um, I'm going to conclude uh, this uh, first lecture with a simple image of a normal yeast cell that gave my laboratory some inkling that yeast cells might be a good uh, test system to use the logic of Hartwell to discover the genes involved in protein export. Here is a thin slice through a normal, a wild-type yeast cell, obviously very different than a pancreatic cell. It's dominated, the cytoplasm is dominated by a very high granular content of ribosomes. But as you can see, there are some organelles. These are membrane organelles. This large structure is the yeast vacuole. It is the equivalent of a mammalian lysosome. In other sections of this cell, you can see that yeast cells have a nucleus. You can also see that there are tubular membranes that are similar to the endoplasmic reticulum. Uh, But my laboratory was particularly intrigued by the appearance um, of a cluster of small vesicles that congregate under the bud portion of a dividing cell. These vesicles seem likely to be responsible for conveying proteins for secretion into the growing bud surface of a cell. This is the bud of the cell. But further, we imagine that the membrane of the vesicle uh, would contain the building blocks for the assembly of the plasma membrane. And thus, by this process of membrane fusion, the vesicle would not only discharge proteins into the cell wall that surrounds the yeast cell, but that the membrane of the vesicle would be, in a sense, the building block of the plasma membrane. So the fundamental prediction that I'll leave you with in this part, and which I will elaborate on in my next lecture, is that the genes involved in the production of these vesicles, we predicted, would be required for cell growth and secretion, and therefore the genes could only be studied by obtaining conditional or temperature-sensitive lethal mutations. So we'll leave it there and pick it up in my next lecture. Thank you.